If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 6. I do want to jump right back into our study through the book of Revelation. I know I've spent the last few Wednesday nights sort of dealing with prophecy in general and various interpretive issues. And I hope I hadn't confused folks a whole, whole lot. But I do want to pick back up just in our study of Revelation. A reason that I kind of took that aside, sort of a side ramp for the past few Wednesday nights was just to try to help with some, just some foundational issues. And, and my understanding, the way that I'm going to teach through the rest of the book of Revelation is that chapters 6 through 19 really describe events that will take place during the future tribulation period. And sort of help you understand how I've come to that conviction and others come to that conviction, you realize that Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And so when you lay Scripture side by side and you realize that Revelation is the last book of the Bible that's been given, that closed out the, the biblical canon, you understand there was a lot that came before that in terms of the Old Testament, what was revealed to Daniel about the future. And we looked at that. And then I briefly showed you the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, what Jesus had to say about the future. You add to that some of the, the, you know, the information that we're given in some of the epistles of Paul, I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in particular, um, and you get this understanding that the timeline as far as future events is, you know that Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour of his return. And so we don't study prophecy to try to set dates and that would be foolish, it would be a waste of time, it would be a distraction from what God's called us to do. No man knows the day or the hour. And yet there are some prophetic clues, what God wants us to know, he's plainly revealed in his word. I'm reminded of a verse from Deuteronomy that says the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that he's revealed belong to us and our children forever so he has revealed truth concerning the future that he does want us to know and so as far as prophetic signs seasons those who are discerning will be able to discern the times if they know their Bible you know um Whenever NASA <clears throat> launches a rocket into space, say they want to send up a satellite or something like that, you know, the folks at NASA, they have, a, they have this in-depth checklist that they always go through, things that have to be tested before liftoff. And sometimes there are delays, but for the most part, when the countdown has begun, it usually continues until the very final second, the last second. And you know how all that works. It's just a matter of time once the countdown begins. You're familiar with the sequence in that countdown. 10, 9, 8. And eventually it's 3, 2, 1, liftoff. Well, in a similar way, there is a sequence and a countdown, if you will, on God's end time checklist. Now, we don't know where we are in terms of that countdown. But all of the signs point to the obvious fact that we are moving closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus. And again, 
the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, uh, Jesus told us what those signs would involve. He described these as being the beginning of birth pains, things that his disciples could look for as, as history sort of is moving along toward this final climactic moment in the last days. But interestingly enough, Jesus emphasizes throughout all of that in Matthew 24, verse 42, he says to his disciples, stay awake for you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. He says in the very next chapter, watch therefore for you do not know the day nor the hour. So while there are, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, we know that there are some clear signs for those who are discerning enough to see. Several years ago, I think it was in 2009, April of 2009, the cover of Newsmax magazine, there was an article about end times, prophecy, the return of Jesus, but the cover of this magazine had a depiction of Jesus sort of with his hands outstretched, his arms outstretched, and the heading underneath this picture on the cover said this, the Jesus question Will he ever return? That was the question that the magazine posed. They devoted a couple of articles in the magazine that month to prophetic speculation and interest. But interestingly enough, the article went on to say that one in five Americans believe that Jesus will return in this present generation. And 20% say that the global life expectancy is only a couple of decades. Now, that was 12 years ago. Now, who could have imagined a decade ago if we had experienced what we've experienced just the last couple of years in particular with pandemic, you know? Just up until last couple of years, we thought we were beyond that kind of thing. Pandemic, oh, that happens, that happened 100 years ago. That was the last, but now modern technology, science, medicine, pandemic, that's, that's a thing of the past, right? <laughs> Evidently not. So perhaps prophetic interest may only be skyrocketing. skyrocketing. And so the thing is, the article went on to just basically say that a lot of Americans live with angst when they consider the fact that there's a lot of turmoil in the world. There's a lot of conflict. Seems like there are pressure points all around the, the global scene, political pressure points, conflicts in this particular region, issues here. And you think there, there are a number of geopolitical hotspots right now when you think about the nuclear pursuits of the Iranian regime, when you think about the issue in North Korea, South Korea, when you think about just this week, the headlines with Russia perhaps building up troops on the Ukrainian border the interests that the Chinese have in terms of Taiwan and all of that. There are any number of scenarios where one could easily envision World War III breaking out. And so for that reason, there's a lot of angst, I feel, in the hearts of people, in the minds of people. Now, that's not to say that there should be any angst in our hearts as the followers of Jesus. And so we don't study prophecy and we don't come to revelation and think about what's going on in the world and that shouldn't cause us to worry, to fret, to be filled with concern. That's an unhealthy kind of concern, an over-preoccupation with this kind of stuff. 
But I do believe that there's something coming and all of us can feel it, can't we? Clouds are building on the horizon. You know what it's like in the, 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 the heat of summertime before a storm arrives on the scene, how quiet it gets? Isn't it an amazing thing that there's kind of a calm before a major storm? The breeze, I mean, there's not a breeze in the air. The air's thick, not a movement. And you begin seeing those thunderheads building in the distance and you begin hearing the rumbling of thunder and it begins to get more intense and you know that there's a storm on the way. As those who trust in Jesus, we have no cause to be alarmed when we look at the world scene. But we do know that the word of God predicts a coming crisis, the likes of which has never before been witnessed on earth. And that's saying a lot especially when you consider the last century with two world wars, major conflicts. And so it's to this coming crisis that we now come in our study of Revelation. And here in chapter six in particular, the events associated with the future tribulation period are described. Events associated with Daniel's 70th week that we looked at from Daniel chapter nine a couple weeks ago. Events that Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse. And these are now the focal point of these chapters in Revelation, beginning with chapter 6, going all the way through chapter 19. Now, here's the thing. What John will do in Revelation, often you have, you have the breaking of the seven seals, the, the sealed scroll that John sees in, in chapter five and the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. In order for him to open the scroll, he's got to break those seven seals on that scroll. With the breaking of the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets and the judgments associated with the seals, judgments associated with the trumpets, with the seventh trumpet, there are seven bowls of wrath that are poured out and so this is, this is the, the reading of the contents of the scroll. And the scroll is representative of the kingdom, the title deed to the earth and all that goes into to the coming kingdom. And, and so, again, these chapters are going to deal with these events associated with the breaking of the seals, followed by the trumpets, culminating in seven bowls of wrath. Now, when you look at all of this, and I keep coming back to this thought, you know, you need to realize that the omniscient God knows precisely what's ahead, an omnipresent God is already there, and an omnipotent God is in control of it. And that ought to be something to give you confidence. When you, when you read your Bible, confidence, when you encounter issues in your daily life, when you think about all of the geopolitical conflicts, the turmoil that surrounds issues in our own country, this ought to be a cause for comfort in your heart as a believer. Omniscient, our God knows everything. He has all wisdom, all knowledge. He knows what's up ahead. He's omnipresent, which means he's already there. He's omnipotent, which means he's in control of it all. And so these events that we're going to look at, and while there's some strange symbolism, and while there's destruction on a global scale that's described, and the consequences of that, if you think about it, it's just mind-boggling this will be a cause of comfort in your heart when you realize that an omnipotent God is in control of it all. And by the way, you need to realize something else too, 
The tribulation period will be a time of God's judgment that's going to be poured out on sin. But listen to this. What you see happening in the tribulation period, it's really the logical consequences of where sin is going to take human society. Where rebellion against God ultimately is going to lead. God is the perfect gentleman. And someone says, we want a society without God. Well, you know what? God say, okay. Have it your way. See how that works out for you. And so what you see then is the logical consequences of man's sin and man's rebellion. It's going to lead to a confrontation with God's judgment. So the throne room vision, where we last left off in chapters 4 and 5, this sets the stage for the judgments that we begin to read about in chapter 6 and the chapters that follow. The one who's sovereign over creation, as we see him presented in chapter 4. The lamb who's sovereign over redemption, we see this presented in chapter 5. He's also the lamb who's sovereign in judgment, and that's the theme of chapter 6. And this lamb reserves the right to break open the seals and to read the content of the scroll. The scroll is the title deed to the earth. It's the kingdom of the world that is his by virtue of his death and resurrection. Because of what Jesus has accomplished in terms of God's redemptive plan, he alone is worthy to break open the seals, to read the contents of the scroll, to usher in the kingdom because the kingdom belongs to him. Okay? So, we're going to come to a passage of Scripture tonight here in the sixth chapter that perhaps has been the focal point of so much speculation, intrigue. It's been the, the, the language of this chapter has been used in Hollywood, major motion pictures, artwork. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, even WWE, you had wrestlers who took their names from this particular, the four horsemen, <laughs> Okay. Don't ask me who they were because I can't tell you. I don't know. But I think Ric Flair was one of them, if I'm sure, pretty sure. But the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So let's just begin reading here in, in verse 1 of, of chapter 6. John says, now I watched. Now, again, keep in mind, he's been in heaven. You know, he's, he's seen this vision of the throne room in the past couple of chapters. He's watching I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse. Its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. 
And I looked and behold a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death. And Hades or hell followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. Now, we'll stop reading right there. But what you should notice as you've read these verses is that the breaking of the first four seals, with each of those seals, there's a corresponding writer that John sees. And all of this is so symbolic, but it's, it's the events that are associated with the breaking of these seals, the writing of these individual writers, judgment, begins, the tribulation period begins, and the events that are associated with that. And so what you have happening here then, John very much sees something happening in heaven that affects what happens on earth. Events in heaven lead to events that happen on earth. And by the way, that's the way it always is. Uh, we saw this, I think, through our study of Daniel. The things that happen on earth don't just happen. But the issues on earth oftentimes are influenced by that which is unseen and invisible. And that's very much the case here. So John sees something happening in heaven, and there are consequences of that that play out on earth. So in chapters 4 and 5, he's been in the throne room of heaven. Well, now, here in chapter 6, John has shown what's going to be happening on earth as a direct result of the beginning of the tribulation period and, and really the culmination of this climactic moment for humanity before the return of Jesus. Now, I should say this, because I know that the question has been asked, where does the rapture of the church fit into all of this? Now, I'm not going to wade into it tonight, but I'm just going to tell you what I personally am of the conviction that the rapture happens before the tribulation period begins. The pre-tribulational rapture view, I believe that there are some clear reasons from Scripture as to why that's the best view. Not everyone agrees on that. Other people hold to a mid-tribulational view of the rapture, that the rapture happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Some hold to a post-tribulational view of the rapture, which means they believe that it happens toward the end. It's just sort of simultaneous with the glorious appearing of Jesus at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom. I believe that it happens before the events of the tribulation. In fact, I believe that it's the rapture of the church that often ushers in, that will usher in the events of the tribulation period, which means it's a signless event. There is nothing that has to happen before the rapture of the church. And so for anyone to hold to some other view of the rapture, one of the things that you lose with that is this sense of imminence that's associated with what the Scripture says concerning the return of Jesus. It's very obvious that the Scripture says believers ought to live with a sense of imminence. Not the immediate return of Jesus, but the imminent return of Jesus. There's a sense in which he could come any moment for his church. Rapture. After which, Daniel's 70th week We'll begin. Now, at some point, probably after the first of the year, we'll, we'll get into some of the particulars on that. So if that is to alleviate any concern or angst in your mind, someone says, I'm just, I get to that part where it talks about them locusts stinging all them people on earth. I'm just hoping we ain't here for that. I don't believe we will be, okay? 
But now something else to consider too, there is a sense in which what you see happening here in the tribulation period, the breaking of the seals, all that's associated with it where you have where you have war and you have conquest and you have famine and you have devastation and you have death. There's a sense in which all of this has been true of humanity going all the way back to man's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And so there's a sense in which man's world, it's, it's been broken from the, very, from the very moment man sinned against God and plunged the human race into sin and disobedience. No matter what man has tried to build, he's never been able to build anything that lasts. And there's a spirit of defiance that characterizes humanity. And yet, all of this is going to kind of come to a head during the tribulation period. So know that the events of the tribulation begin with these riders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there's a, a wicked good picture of that depicted behind me. All right, so the first seal, seal number one, when it's broken, verses one and two, John sees a rider on a white horse who's summoned by one of the living creatures. And there in the blank there, you write the word delusion. Delusion. John says he hears one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And so it's this angelic being in heaven acting in obedience to the decree of God, issuing this command, beginning a chain of events, if you will, that happen at the beginning of the tribulation period. There's something that happens in heaven affecting what's happening on earth. Which, by the way, let me just say, you know, so much of our world today and our society today bristles at the notion of anything supernatural. There's a secularism and sort of a secularization that has been characteristic of our modern world and the thinking and the default way of thinking as far as humanity is concerned. October 2019, Pew Research released a news report, and the title was this, In the United States, the decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. And the research indicated that even though 65% of Americans identified as Christians when asked about their religion, it was a decrease of 12% in just 10 years. The decline is particularly pronounced among younger Americans. And a full third of those who were 35 and younger reported no religious affiliation whatsoever. Dr. Al Mohler, who's the uh, president at Southern Seminary, he said that the most familiar word for the process that we're witnessing now is secularization. Scholars debate this term aggressively, but it points to a process that's been taking hold in modern societies since the dawn of the modern age. It doesn't mean that all people in these societies become truly secular or even irreligious, but it means that Christianity, which forged the moral and spiritual worldview of Western civilization, is slowly being displaced. Society is becoming progressively secularized. And the key issue is that society is distant, distanced from Christian theism as the fundamental explanation of the world as the moral structure of human society. 
Christian truth claims have lost all binding authority in the culture and biblical Christianity no longer binds their consciences or grounds their fundamental values. So what you see happening now throughout the West, the vast majority view of those in the West is heavily influenced by an assumption that rules out the supernatural. It rules out the Judeo-Christian ethic or the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so this then has become so much of the thinking that flavors the American university, that goes into the worldview of, of, of students in our culture who grow up then to become the shapers, the movers and shakers of society, who become judges and lawyers and politicians and decision makers in society, but they have a fundamental worldview that is naturalistic in their thinking, no basis for morality, no God whatsoever. If there is a God, I'm he. And this has become so much of the thinking now throughout the Western world. And don't think for a second that this is not somehow influencing and will influence where things are headed prophetically toward the end that God himself has already determined. So the lamb opens this first seal, the living creature says come, things are then set in motion which follow a divinely ordained course of events. And these four horsemen begin to ride, ultimately, folks, because it's God who sends them out. <laughs> and so this first rider, John sees, riding a white horse. The text says, John says he's holding a bow. There's no mention of arrows. He's given a crown. He comes out conquering and to conquer. Now, there's been some disagreement among Bible scholars as to who or what the rider of this horse best represents. Some of the more familiar interpretations have included uh, this is just symbolic of military conquest throughout history. Verse 2 says the rider goes forth conquering and to conqueror. And so some say, well, this is military conquest that leads to violence and bloodshed that's pictured in the next three horsemen. And yet when you look at that, you'll notice that it's the next horse that's red, and this is the one that symbolizes bloodshed, violence, and war. So this interpretation would make the first two seals virtually indistinguishable from one another and, and would be redundant. And furthermore, the second seal, verse 4, says that peace is taken from the earth. And so for the writer to remove peace from the earth, this means that peace must be present in the first place. And so military conquest is not so much the best interpretation with this rider on a white horse. However, there is this element of conquest. There's a bow in his hand, no mention of arrows. This very much could point to some type of political victory that comes through diplomacy which is a big buzzword in the world today, isn't it? A second interpretation that some folks hold to is that this represents the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. Since the rider of this horse, the horse is white, this is symbolic of the advancement of the gospel, though preaching uh, in a hostile, evil environment. 
But the problem with this view is that all four writers are to be interpreted together as a kind of unit, and you have to keep in mind the fact that all of this is judgment that's being described. And so I don't necessarily see the global advancement of the gospel being coupled with judgment. So it would be strange to include that there. And then obviously some have said, well, the rider of this white horse, this is Jesus on this first horse. Since Jesus is the one who's described elsewhere in Scripture as riding a white horse, we know that he's coming back on a white horse. Revelation 19 says as much. But there's a major difference. Because when he comes back in chapter 19, he's coming to put an end to war. And he's coming with a sword issuing from his mouth. And he's not wearing a crown that was given to him. No, he's wearing many diadems. There's a different Greek word describing the crowns that he has. This is the Stephanos. This is a crown that's given to this particular writer. And so this is not Jesus. By the way, I find it really hard to believe that Jesus is the one who's breaking the the seals to begin with. And it's a living creature in heaven who's giving a command to this first rider to ride. And the sovereign Lord of heaven doesn't take commands from the created creatures of heaven. So this is not Jesus. This is not just military conquest. This is not the advancement of the gospel. But I believe what you have here is a symbolic picture of Antichrist, a Messiah figure who will deceive the world and the world will buy into his delusions. And that's best in keeping with what the scripture says concerning the final tribulation period. This writer bears the marks of a counterfeit who imitates Christ. You say, well, how do you come to that interpretation? Well, I think there's some convincing evidence, especially when you lay side by side Revelation 6 and 7 with Matthew 24, what Jesus himself said about the last days, what Jesus revealed about the tribulation period. I don't know if you can see this or not, but behind me on the screen, I've sort of put in two columns what Matthew 24 says in terms of the, the, the events associated with the last days, what Jesus told his disciples would be true, you lay that side by side with what's revealed here in Revelation 6 and 7. Jesus says one of the first signs will be false saviors, false messiahs. The fact that deception will be on the increase in the last days. The second sign he mentions is that of wars and rumors of wars which then is followed up by famine, which then is followed up by plagues, followed by persecution, cosmic signs, the global preaching of the gospel. When you look at that in comparison to Revelation chapter six and seven with the breaking of the seven seals, you'll notice that the first seal associated with the white horse, I believe this lines up with what Jesus says about deception and false saviors, false Christs. Which, by the way, what is it that's going to ultimately lead to the the, the geopolitical situation of the last days? Listen to me. The world's going to buy into the agenda of Antichrist. The world's going to think that it's found its savior. The world is going to think that just by sheer virtue of man's wisdom 
and power and might. The world's going to try to build Babel. Unite the world under one world leader, Antichrist. This guy's our, he's our Superman. He's our hero. He's got all the answers. You look at what Daniel says about this coming ruler. What other passages of scripture say about this coming ruler. What Revelation will later say about him. Revelation 13. I believe that that's who's being described here with this, this first judgment. This first seal that's being broken. This is a false sense of security. A false peace. A false Christ that the world is going to get behind. And so delusion. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, the rider on the white horse most likely represents bloodless conquest, false peace and security. And notice that he carries a bow without any mention of arrows. The type of crown on his head, this is the Stephanos. This is not a crown of regal authority, but a victor's crown that's given. And he says, the tribulation period will begin with a deceptive peace accompanied by a counterfeit spirituality and false religion. Now, what did we see in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27? That says, the prince of the people which is to come will make a strong covenant with many for a week. The idea is that he's going to broker some sense of peace, a strategic sense of peace with Israel and perhaps Israel's neighbors, someone who's going to appear to have the answer to the Middle East problem that's just plagued every American president, that's plagued every uh, political leader, going all the way back to the, the, the birth of the modern nation state of Israel in 1948. The Jewish Islamic issue, the warring faction among Abraham's descendants, the Jews and the This guy's going to know how to broker a peace deal. So the last days are going to be characterized by deception and counterfeits who will claim to have all the answers for the world's problems and eventually one man is going to stand head and shoulders above everybody else. He's going to embody deception and he will be the Antichrist. It's a man exalting himself as the answer to all the world's problems. Now, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. You know, the word Antichrist is only mentioned five times in the New Testament, and it all comes from the pen of the Apostle John. John talks about Antichrist in 1 John. 1 John 2.18 "'Children, it's the last hour, and you've heard that the Antichrist is coming.'" He said, even now, many antichrists have already appeared, and from this, we know that it's the last hour. The word antichrist means in the place of Christ. Someone who offers himself as the savior of someone. Someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God, come in the flesh. This is the spirit of antichrist. First John 2.22, who is the liar but the one who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist, the one who denies Father and Son, the Father and the Son. First John 4.3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard that is coming and now already is at work in the world. Second John 1.7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
So again, there are multiple passages in Scripture. We get, a, we get a sketch of the personality and the agenda of the Antichrist, much of which comes from Daniel, the writings of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says that the coming of the lawless one, this Antichrist figure, he's referred to as the lawless one. It's by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And so Paul says in the last days that, um, <clears throat> verse 11 and 12 of that text, that God is going to send a strong delusion throughout the world that many believe in what's false. So people are going to buy in to this antichrist spirit and then the embodiment of this spirit in a man and in a system and in a governmental structure. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. That spirit is already at work now in the sons of disobedience. And you see it manifest itself. The mystery of iniquity that scripture refers to. The mystery of lawlessness. I mean, isn't it an amazing thing that it just seems like human society right here in the West, in the United States of America, just spiraling into lawless chaos? And all of the media prognosticators and pundits and political gurus, they're wondering what's going on throughout the United States. And so morality's been turned on its head, justice turned on its head and perverted in such a way that now what's right is what once was considered wrong and what once was considered wrong is now considered right. This is the spirit of lawlessness that's going to embody, it's be embodied in this coming antichrist figure. Mm. Which means that discernment is going to be absent in the last days as people begin to buy into a lie. You know, something that's really caught my attention the last year, I know it's been a phenomenon the last two or three years, but you hear this, this word de deconstruct a lot. There's a deconstructionist movement that's popular among millennials. I have a book that came. It's on my desk at home. I haven't read it yet, but it's, it, it's, a, it's basically just facts and figures and quotes from leading former evangelicals who have proudly gone through this deconstructionist process whereby they've stripped themselves of all traditional Christian understandings, reinterpreted biblical texts to mean something entirely different than what 2,000 years of church history have interpreted to mean, openly accommodating of homosexuality, justifying same-sex marriage, transgenderism, you name it. And now you've got men like Joshua Harris who uh, has written books, one of which was a book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which is a very popular book 20, 25 years ago, who now just two years ago came out and publicly denied the faith. Followed by a number of other high-profile former megachurch leaders, Christian leaders, and you see this phenomenon on social media and Twitter, and it's this deconstructionist, deconstructionist movement. Don't tell me 
that the mystery of iniquity and delusion is not already at work in our world, because it is. And scoffers are only going to increase with the passing of time. And so one of the reasons I think the rapture of the church may not be such a shocking thing to the rest of the world is because there's going to be a strong delusion sent to the rest of the world. And there are going to be naturalistic answers and explanations that those under the delusion are going to come up with. Probably alien abduction or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So John was going to say later in chapter 13 that the whole world is going to worship the beast and say, who's like the beast? So there's just this, this spirit of deception and delusion. And I believe that's what's represented with the breaking of this first seal, the rider of the white horse. Now, number two, and I got to hurry here. The rider on the red horse, and the word you can write there in the blank, as far as the second seal, is the word destruction. John says that whenever the lamb opens the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. And notice its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the events associated with the opening of the second seal follow logically the first. Immediately after the rider on the white horse brings this sense of false security, the second seal brings a rider on a fiery red horse who shatters it. So the world gets behind the lies and the false peace of this antichrist figure, this antichrist spirit. It's only going to lead to an erosion of peace as the world erupts in conflict. That red color is as descriptive of violence and bloodshed. Rather than having a bow, this rider wields a great sword. Now, this is a different word used for sword uh, compared to the one that's used back in chapter 1 uh, that belongs to Jesus Christ. The word that's used here describes a dagger that belonged to assassins in the first century Roman world. Often it was connected with violent uprising. So the kind of violence then that's being described associated with this red horse and its rider, this is a picture of civil anarchy. The kind of conflict that takes place whenever the social order breaks down. When mobs of people begin taking to the streets and killing each other out of a sense of lawlessness. Jesus describes this in Matthew 24. He says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It's interesting that he refers to nation and, and, and it's juxtaposed beside the word kingdom. The idea behind nation rising against nation, these are people groups and ethnicities rising against other people groups and ethnicities. Ethnic conflict, racial hatred and conflict. Who do you think is behind all of that? Who foments that? Who wants to pit humanity against itself on the basis of the color of skin? It's the evil one who's behind that. Not the spirit of the Lord Jesus who makes a new man in Christ and brings us together as brothers and sisters, red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in his sight. But the evil one is behind such conflict. Jesus says many will take offense and they'll betray one another. They'll hate one another. 
You, you know who General Omar Bradley was? One of the great World War II generals, but November 11th, he was giving a speech in Boston. November 11th was Armistice Day. In fact, I believe it was the 30th anniversary of the Armistice commemorating the end of World War I, you know, the, the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour where the conflict of World War I came to an end. But General Bradley, 30 years later, after a second world war, he's giving the, a speech on Armistice Day. Listen to what he said. <clears throat> With the monstrous weapons that man already has, humanity is in danger of being trapped in this world by its moral adolescence. Our knowledge of science has clearly outstripped our capacity to control it. We have many men of science, but too few men of God. We've grasped the mystery of the Adam and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Man is stumbling blindly through a spiritual darkness while toying with the precarious secrets of life and death. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom, power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace more about killing than we know about living, and this is the 20th century's claim to distinction and progress. True words, truer words have never more been spoken. So you've got this rider on the red horse who's got a great sword, violence, bloodshed, this is, this is characteristic of humanity, the tribulation period, the coming man of sin is going to usher in a time of lawlessness and violence and it's all going to be in the name of peace to begin with. Someone has said that when men of low character hold high office, you know that judgment is not long in coming. Amen. Seal number three, quickly, the rider of the black horse, verses five and six. The word you can write in the blank there is the word deprivation. As the third seal is broken, John sees this rider on a black horse begin to ride. And this rider doesn't have a weapon in his hand, but he's got a pair of scales with which food was rationed in times of famine. And just as anarchy and violence will follow this false sense of peace promised by the Antichrist, the result of the crisis is going to be economic collapse, even food shortages. And the severity of it, you see that in verse 6, a quart of wheat... This is barely enough to sustain one person for one day, while a denarius represents a full day's wages. So the idea is the daily salary for an average worker will barely provide food for himself for a day and nowhere near enough to feed his family. So what you have described with this, this the breaking of this third seal, deprivation, this is economic inflation an economic downturn and depression, the likes of which the world has never seen. Infla uh, inflation means that prices for basic necessities will skyrocket. That leads to recession, that leads to panic. People lose their livelihoods, they can no longer provide for themselves, no longer provide for them families, their families. And so inflation affects everybody in an economy, but in particular it affects the most vulnerable and the poorest of that economy. Ray Steadman said, he said, I remember as a boy 
hearing stories of the economic distress in the post-World War Weimar Republic of Germany. The Deutschmark, the German monetary unit, had declined so sharply that people would load thousands of bills into a wheelbarrow and haul them into the market just to buy one loaf of bread. That's what inflation does. That's what economic collapse does. It renders money useless, which, by the way, this may be a justification that Antichrist will use to impose control over buying and selling. We read about that in chapter 13. An interesting detail there, the voice says, don't harm the oil and wine. Oil and wine, these were luxuries afforded by the wealthy. So what you have here, you've got this picture of economic imbalance where the rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer, there is no middle class. And when that happens, conditions, those conditions, this is always the fuel for social revolution and upheaval. That's the way we've seen this played out in history. Think about the French Revolution. Remember Marie Antoinette and the famous quote that was attributed to her during the French Revolution where it said that upon learning that her peasant subjects were starving and had no bread, she said, then let them eat cake because cake is more expensive than bread. The anecdote, this is something that's been cited as an example of her total obliviousness to the condition the daily lives of ordinary people. Which, by the way, don't we feel like more and more that's often the case between our politicians and us anyway? And then last, what about the, the rider of the pale horse? Right deaf there in the blank. When the lamb opens the fourth seal, the voice of the fourth living creature says, come. John says, I looked and behold a pale horse. The word pale translates a Greek word. It's the same word we get the word chlorine from. Now listen, you ever seen what chlorine does to blonde hair in the summertime? What color does it turn it, folks? Green, pale green. That's the color. This ashen, pale, corpse-like color. That's the color of this fourth horse. This rider on this horse is death. The grave follows with him. And he's given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with the sword, famine, pestilence, beast of the earth. More than likely, that's a reference to regimes. Every other time, 38 times the word beast is used in Revelation. It's always used in connection with the government of Antichrist, regimes. So just to sum it all up, the writers of these Four horses represent ultimately really where sin is going to lead. As it runs its course, its logical consequences are played out. A cataclysmic confrontation with the judgment of God. You know, Romans 1 says that God gave them over to their evil passions. When he talks about the course of society and rebellion in society. God confronts us with this unpleasant truth. You want a world without God and without God's law? God says, all right, have it your way. And people then choose to believe a lie. And God sends them a powerful delusion of the Antichrist that Paul describes. If men and women seek to kill and destroy, then God will give them the anarchy and mob rule that they demand. 
may even give them over to nuclear holocaust whereby they destroy themselves with the very weapons that they themselves invent. If it's more luxury and stuff with which to gratify their lust and appetite, then God will give them economic inflation and upheaval that's the direct result of their greed. And ultimately, their luxuries and their money will be worthless and even the necessities of life will be beyond their reach. If it's power and control that they demand, then they'll receive the brutal consequences of unrestrained power. Deceit, disease, death, the desolation of their world. And folks, that is the best that man can come up with on his own. But aren't you glad that in Jesus Christ, there's hope and there's salvation and there's a kingdom that's coming? And I'm glad to be a part of that kingdom, aren't you? Let's stand for prayer tonight. You know, once these riders begin to ride, there will be no hitch in their giddy-up. Because when the wheels of judgment are set in motion, they'll move forward and grind to a powder all that's in their way until it's all accomplished. And when the lamb breaks the seals, there'll be no negotiations, no hesitation, no cancellation, no miscalculation on his part. The one and only hope for humanity now is the salvation which God offers humanity in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we come to you tonight Lord, humbly and mindful, Lord, that man and his world apart from you is doomed. And when the world around us boasts that it has all the answers and rules God out of the conversation, Lord, we know that that's nothing more than just deception from the enemy. And God, we pray for people. I pray for people that don't know you. Lord, as your church, may we be discerning. May we be actively involved in sharing the gospel and pointing people to the hope of Jesus. I don't want to imagine a world that's left up to the consequences of sin and rebellion against God. Mm. But Lord, thank you that Jesus is coming and his kingdom will know no end. And we praise his name. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said together, amen.